You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show. I didn't know this, but Larry King's first radio show was in 1957. This guy is the history of radio. He's done over 60,000 interviews, probably spent, I don't know, a million hours on the radio uh he's had his ups and downs one time he lost his job because he was charged with grand larceny and he he has some amazing stories where he had 48 dollars left to his name and bet it all on a horse and we're, we're gonna hear this story but cal fussman was one of his closest friends they had breakfast together cal fussman and larry king had breakfast together every day for over a decade and Cal has just some amazing stories and memories, and they were good friends, so it, it gets emotional. But I didn't know all these things about this this legend of radio. So let's listen to, to Cal, because it really is an example of real success. Not the kind of celebrity success you read about in People magazine. This is filled with ups and downs and persistence and progress. 
So let's hear Cal tell us what he learned. So Cal, Cal Fussman, you were arguably one of Larry King's best friends. And I, I'm not exaggerating too much when I say this, particularly in his latter years. Yeah, I had breakfast with him almost every day for more than a decade. Wow, every single day, not not Saturday and Sunday. No, every single day when we were both in town. Now, there were times, especially toward the end, when I started to speak around the world. And so I would leave. But when I came back, there would Larry be at the breakfast table. And sometimes he went out. But when we were both in L.A., we had breakfast every day. And sometimes in the beginning, when he was still on CNN, he used to take me into his CNN show at night. And he would sit me off right next to where he was sitting. Camera couldn't pick me up, but it really enabled me to study how he did what he did. And... Often we'd end up going to the Palm. So sometimes it'd be breakfast and dinner. And even sometimes there would be lunches. <laughs> so I, I got pretty close to him. And like, okay, so I have so many questions. Uh, first, I mean, we'll start from the beginning. How did you, you know, I, I have questions about his interviewing style, his, his personal life, uh, your friendship, uh, his latter years, so so many different questions, his his career, his success, his effect on you. Um, but first off, how'd you meet him? I met him. It's an interesting question because when you say, how did you meet him? Does that mean the first time that you actually shook someone's hand? Or does it mean when I was in a car driving from Columbia, Missouri, where I went to college, like back to New York, and he had a mutual radio show where he was on all night. All night, from like 11 at night to five in the morning. I, I don't think people realize how hard radio personalities, particularly big ones, work. I mean, they are, they are interviewing people and trying to be entertaining to a large audience for so many hours a day, every single day, that's, that's incredibly difficult to be good at that, to be good enough that people want to keep tuning in every single day because they're not listening. It's not like Larry King says, tomorrow we have Tiger Woods on and then everybody suddenly turns in. They turn in because they like Larry King, because they like the, the host. Whether or not the listener or other people liked him, he had a huge audience, and I want to dive into that because he had a very unusual interviewing style, which not everybody is a fan of. But, okay, so let, let's do both. You first met him somewhere, and then you first, like, had some kind of chemistry with him at some other point. Okay, so I would listen to his all-night show because he was doing that. That's how he got to CNN. Why would you listen to his all-night radio show? It was amazing. I mean, this guy was on from 11 at night to 5 in the morning. Great interviews, but also he could be telling stories. And he made you feel like you were with him. I and mean, that's the great thing about radio. You're in a car and somebody's talking to you. You got a friend. 
and he became a friend to the nation. Now, when you were listening from 11 p.m. to 5 in the morning, were you on the road? What were yeah, you doing? Like I'd be driving on a highway. And so that's my my first like mental images of Larry King where you, like, you're just moving through Sandusky, Ohio. <laughs> why were, were you like coming back from a brothel? Like why were you at a three in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, like I'm taking like a cross country trip. Imagine like, and it's try and see me as like a truck driver. Okay. Yeah. Imagine I'm a truck driver. It's very difficult to imagine that. <laughs> Where's your like tattoos and the beard and the pack of cigarettes in the pocket? I don't know. I have a weird image of truck drivers. Well, I like truck drivers and I, I often traveled their roads when I was going to school in mid Missouri. Uh, and I would drive back to New York along Highway 70, or I'd go out to watch the team play football games. Uh, you'd go on Highway 80, you'd be going to Nebraska and Colorado, and you're driving in the middle of the night. And here's the thing, very few people realize this. Larry King was the reason that we have all these talk shows on AM radio now, because back Back in the 60s, AM radio was the hot place to listen to music. This would be for FM. You were, like if you were living in New York, it was like Cousin Brucie and uh, on WABC. And they had contests where you could win 25,000 bucks if you they could figure out the name of like, the first few bars of the song, if you can name it. It, it was, if you were... 13 or 14, you were tuned in. But then what happened is FM radio started to come along in the 70s. It became the cool thing. The, the connection was better. So everybody who loved music wanted to go to FM. So AM was left saying, oh, man, well, like, what are we going to do here? And this guy, his, I think his name was Ed Little at the Mutual radio network realized what was going on before anybody. Larry was a DJ and an interviewer in Miami. He had some renown. He was Mr. Miami, but nobody knew him in Iowa or Idaho. And this guy, Ed Little, thought, you know what? I'm going to ask Larry King to do an all-night show, and I'm going to put it all over America between 11 and 5 in the morning, and everyone said, this guy, you're nuts. Ed Little, nobody in Louisiana is going to listen to Larry King because the people in Louisiana want their homegrown talent. They don't want to be living, listening to somebody from Boise, Idaho. And the people in Idaho don't want to be listening to somebody in New York. Well, Larry took a gamble on it. Uh, he started in Miami very briefly, then moved to Washington. And immediately... This show took off all over because, think about it, if you are up at 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning, if you're the night watchman, if you're the nurse working that shift, you're kind of alone. And Larry was a bullseye for those people because he made them laugh, he made them curious, 
He made them interested. That's why I could drive along the highway for 18 straight hours. Well, he was only with me for six during the night. But it was always moving to somewhere new. His curiosity fueled your curiosity. Like, what would be an example? Like, what would he tell a story about that would keep you on the edge of your seat, literally? Oh, man. Have you ever heard him tell the Gil Mappo story? To be honest, I have never once listened to an entire Larry King show. I, oh. I've listened to parts and bits and pieces of interviews of people I'm interested in, but I wasn't a huge fan in the sense that I really followed him. I just would be interested in particular guests he had. Okay, so here's what we're gonna do. And look, you got a great producer there in Jay Yao. Yes. When he edits this, we're gonna stop the podcast, okay? And I'm gonna get you a story that Larry tells about Gil Mapo. Now he told me the story, but the story I'm gonna get you, he told to Jimmy Kimmel. And I use this story on the podcast that I did after Larry passed away. I would say the story goes about seven or eight minutes. And Jimmy Kimmel announces it as, this is the best story I've ever heard. And you'll hear Larry go through it on his show. And at the end of it, you will know why this guy was so great and why if you were up at three in the morning and you were alone and you get to hear this story, you are blessed, blessed. I, you, I can't wait to listen to this. I mean, is there, can you give me some highlights? Like what was the story about? I don't want to ruin it. Okay. I don't want to ruin it. Will you tell the story, because I think it might be my favorite story ever, the story of when you and your classmates pretended. But it takes a little time. I know, but I, you know what? I'm willing to spend that time. Pretended that You're not going to edit it out. I know. I'm not going to edit it out. You tell the story. Here's the story. This okay. is a great story. Okay. See, okay. I oversold it already. When you go this to, is kind no, of an okay story. It's a story. good story. Yeah. <laughs> See, if you interrupt, you kill the story. I, okay. I'm sorry. I'm going to keep quiet. I know it's your show. In fact, I may even go stand with the security. Yeah, no. <laughs> we were in ninth grade and uh, in Bensonhurst Junior High School in Brooklyn. That's junior high school. In ninth grade is when you graduated, and then you go on to high school for 10th, 11th, and 12th. Every district is different in the country. In New York City, it's ninth grade. We were 9B4. 9B1, A students. 9B2, B students. 9B3, C students. 9B4, we're not sure. 9B5, Neanderthals. <laughs> One guy in 9B5 loved me. I removed a thorn from his paw. <laughs> anyway, one day, Gil Mermelstein did not come to class. We called him Gil Mappo because he had head like, his hair was like a mop. He didn't come to class. Gil Mappo. That was we called him. So Herbie Cohen, the world's greatest negotiator, Brazia body, a brain surgeon now in Buffalo, and me, we go to visit to find out, we go to his house to find out why Mappo didn't come to school. The, all the shades are drawn, and sitting in front of the house is a boy looking forlorn. He says he's Mappo's cousin. Mappo had developed tuberculosis. The family has taken him to Tucson to cure it. He won't be back in school for a year, so the kid is waiting. He's his only relative. The kid lives in New Jersey. He's waiting overnight to go to school to tell him Mappo won't be back. You can't leave a kid back for illness, so he's going to go on to high school. So Herbie says, well, go on, you go home. We'll tell him. Gosh, it's thanks. He leaves. We're walking down the street, and Herbie says, I got a fantastic idea to make money. We'll tell him Mappo died. <laughs> Mappo died. It's foolproof. 
because the kid is the only relative. He's in Jersey. Mapo's the only child. The parents have taken him to Tucson for a year. He'll be, we can't miss. And what we'll do is we'll raise money. We'll get flowers and candy and we'll go down to Nathan's eat hot dogs. So, <laughs> it, it's, it, it, okay. All right, well, all right. We go into the class. We bow our heads, go up to the teacher. Went to Mapo's house. He's dead. The teacher calls the homeroom. Homeroom calls home. Phone disconnected. They record dead. And we collect $195. <laughs> okay, this is just the beginning. Two weeks later, the teacher, the principal asked to see us. Oh, my God. We're walking down the hall. I'm crying. You know, I got no father, my poor mother. Brazzy, I'll never be a doctor. I'll never be a doctor. Always want, here's Herbie, the negotiator. No problem. I'll handle it. I'll handle it. I'll, we, we had a mix up. We'll give back the money. We'll think of something. We go into the principal's office. Instead of being ticked, he is pleased. My three young friends, sit down. He doesn't know us from Adam. Whoa, sit down. He says, boys, here's what happened. The New York Times wants to do a series of articles on junior high schools because they don't get any credit. High schools get all the play because they play intramural sports and junior high schools don't. So we had a faculty meeting. What could we do? Each school was to do a project. And we heard about you and your raised money for the late Gil Mermes. <laughs> We looked up our records. Gil Mermstein's the only student in the history of this school to die. Most kids make it over that 14-year-old hump. He made it over. Okay, so what we're going to have, you got to hear this, we're going to have a Gil Mermstein Memorial Assembly a week before graduation. And we're going to honor the number one student in the school. We're going to give him or her a replica of a statue. And then we're going to build a statue in the lobby, the Gil Mermstein Memorial, with his picture. And then every year we'll add the name of the winner. And at the assembly, we want a full uh, school assembly. We'd like the three of you to sit on the stage in honor of your late friend. We should have told him. <laughs> uh, to this day, we should have told him, but we were caught up in the ego of the moment. We were, okay. Now we're walking down the hall, and we're leaving the office, and uh, we, we, what are we going to do? We're in trouble. And Herbie goes, well, let's look at it this way. We're going to go on to high school. It's going to take a while. And someday, I know they're going to have a trophy, but look at it this way. Someday, it'll kick in. Someday, Mappa will die. <laughs> and when it does, that trophy will mean something. Anyway, now it's the day. This is God's honest truth. It's the day of the Gil Mappo Memorial Assembly. <laughs> okay, the three of us are on stage. The principal's day speaking. The winner of the first award, and the whole school is there. And that day, that damn day, Mappo came back to school. Uh, <laughs> As, as Herbie likes to say, in tubercular history, it's medicine's finest moment, they cure Mappo. There's only one week left to school. So Mappo comes, and he's got two ways he can enter the school. Through the side, little Chinese curtains, very quiet. Or two big brass doors, they lead right on to 84th Street. Mappo chooses the doors. He opens the door, and the first thing he sees is a banner. Gil Mermelstein Memorial Assembly. Mappo is not the brightest guy in the world. But he knows what memorial means. So he freezes, right? The kids in the back row spot him and immediately know the whole story. Razzy, Herbie, and Larry glommed us for 190 bucks. This is a farce. They knew it immediately because they're New York City kids. If you're a New York City kid, you're, you're, you're ahead even if you... If you're a D student in New York, you're mayor of Des Moines. You can, you can phone it in. He's kidding. No. Now there's panic. The principal's looking up what's going on. 
Herbie stands up to this day, I don't know why he does this, stands up on stage and goes, go home, Mako, you're dead. <laughs> Mako runs, there's pandemonium. The kid who wins the first award, do I get my award? Do I get my award? The principal looks at us, his veins are coming out his neck. My office, now he runs off. Now we're walking down again, and Herbie's saying, don't worry, and I'm crying. And now we get into his office, and this I've never seen a guy angrier in my whole life. <laughs> this he says, this is my worst day in my history of New York City public schools. You are suspended for life. Go down to your locker, take your stuff. You will not graduate. I'm going to recommend Rikers Island. I'm going rec to recommend you chop rocks until you're 18 years old. Get out of my sight. And Herbie says, you know, you're making a big mistake. <laughs> Uh, what happens is, uh, Mr. Principal, is we're going to be suspended because we did a dumb thing. But the school board, you know, you have to have a hearing. That's a rule in New York. It has to be a hearing. And at the hearing, we're going to be suspended because we did a dumb thing. But someone on the board is going to say, Mr. Principal, three dumb kids come into class. They tell your kid is dead. You make one phone call. The phone is disconnected. You create an entire assembly of the dry memorial. Well, I tell you what, we'll be suspended. You'll never be principal again, New York. He says, and here's the capper. He says, so why, why don't we just forget the whole thing? And the principal's whipped, and we forget the whole thing. And here's the final story, and this is true. We graduate not by name, but by uh, size. So we don't graduate alphabetically, but by size of the student. So <laughs> Mop goes right in front of Herbie, and the principal's handing out the diplomas. And nine before, and he goes, Gil Mermelstein. Herbie pushes him aside and said, I'll take it, he's deceased. <laughs>
maybe even close to 80. And I was like, you know, I'm in my 50s. I was like the, the freshman in high school sitting with the seniors, you know. Uh, you just sit and listen. And then after the breakfast, uh, Larry and I would go out and he would tell me the stories that I needed to hear for his autobiography, My Remarkable Journey, which I went on to write. So wait a second. I have no idea about this. You didn't notice? James. Uh, wait, oh, hold man. on a second. I've I've gotten other I I you you have a collection of your Esquire interviews. That's that's what I've got. Uh, you know uh, what? I, I'm going to it's it's interesting. I, I'm just gonna put it out there. Uh, I I wanted to extend Larry's legacy as far and wide as I could. Uh, I did basically an obituary filled with these stories. Uh, some of them that I recorded, uh, the Gil Mappo story, uh, I mentioned Jimmy Kimmel had on his show. And if you if you listen to that podcast, Big Questions with Cal Fussman, Farewell to Larry King, you will understand how great this guy is. Oh, my God, James. James, well, I, just I hold wanna, it. I want to say some hold quick it, highlights. Hold it. Whoa, whoa, okay. whoa, whoa, whoa. All right, hold, you, hold it. You go, you go. If Larry King had not become a broadcast interviewer, he would have become a comic. That's what he told me. Wow. Well, you know, you know, and he worked with, and his he says that his first inspiration was Jackie Gleason. Jackie Gleason recorded a radio show in Miami uh, in the early days when Larry King was recording in Miami. And they would hang out all night from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m. That's correct. And, and when you hear the podcast, he tells the story of how Jackie Gleason got him an interview, three-hour interview, when he was, when Larry was, like, not known. I mean, Larry's, like, <laughs> just getting started in Miami. And at that point, Frank Sinatra was the biggest star in the world didn't do any interviews. New York Times called him. He didn't even bother to return the call. And his press agent like, told Larry, I don't know how you got this, but he pays me money not to do these. And when you hear that story, you are going to fall in love with him in a way that makes me sad because I never had you at our breakfast table. I know. You know, one time... One time Steve Cohen went when we were in California. Oh, you didn't ask me to go. Oh, oh. I was hoping to be get the get the invite. Oh, James, you know, I I I cannot imagine that I didn't invite you because if I, I love you and and if I'm close to you, it's it's almost impossible. You might have been a busy dude. And you know, you'd come out to California and you had a lot of meetings. I'm, I did. That that could be. It could be that I'm you did ask me. I'm pretty sure I asked you to come. Yeah, because I think I was. I think I was pitching a TV show then, and it was like I had meetings like all day, and I I really regretted not going to. It would have been much better to go to the Larry King breakfast. But I just want to say some some highlights that I didn't really realize. First off, the man has done sixty thousand interviews, and so I thought I've done a lot of interviews. I've probably done about I don't know two or three thousand, but Larry King <laughs> dwarfs me. And the other thing is, um, I didn't know his first broadcast, his first radio show was in 1957. That's I mean, correct. This guy is like radio 
history. And I mean, those are just two highlights. He's got many others, but, but those right there show that he's a force to be reckoned with. And there's a lot to learn from him, but I don't know if I've ever learned anything from him. And so that's why I wanted to learn from you on this. Even if you just take an hour to listen to that farewell to the King podcast, uh, you, you can learn storytelling. You will get an understanding of like where his curiosity came from, how it formed him. And also what you're going to get is a new look at the way he asked questions. Yes. He has a very unique way, a, a very unique approach that if other, I've seen other interviewers try his approach and fail miserably. He, he, he mostly pulls it off. I think what got me down on him was the fact that there's sometimes he doesn't pull it off, but you, you could describe his interview style. Well, here's how he got started with interviewing. So, and let me just back it up and, and I'll tell a quick story about his first day on radio. I hope I do it justice. He actually tells it on that podcast. So you could hear it in his words, uh, but he grows up in New York at nine years old in Brooklyn. He's walking home from the library. He's got nine books in his arm. And as he's walking up the steps, he hears his mother scream. Now he noticed police cars out in the street, but he didn't think much of it. And the next thing he knows, a policeman is running down the steps, picks him up, the books go scattering, and puts him in the police car. Larry has no idea what's going on. Was he scared? Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> nine years old, your books are scattered. Policeman has put you in his arms and put you in the police car. And at that moment, the policeman tells Larry that his father has just died of a heart attack. Oh, man. 44 years old, his dad was. And the reason the policeman probably did that was Larry's dad for many years had a bar and grill that was frequented by a lot of the cops. Uh, his dad had a great sense of humor and all the cops appreciated it and they would go to this bar and grill. And I, Larry even remembered at a very young age getting some kind of police uniform and they put a badge on him and he's walking around. And so his family had a good feeling about policemen. And this cop obviously must have known Larry's dad and just wanted to do something good. So he starts driving around the neighborhood and he doesn't know where to go. And so he stops at a movie theater. And this movie theater, this is the middle of World War II, James, is playing the movie Bataan. And it is about a group of American soldiers trying to stave off the Japanese invasion of the Philippines. And so there are only a few American soldiers and they're getting picked off one by one. And the main character is a guy named Robert Taylor playing Sergeant Dane. And so there's down to three Americans 
and the Japanese are coming in slowly. I think the the the, la- the third to last of the three uh, is hit by a sniper, taken out. The second is stabbed by a Japanese soldier who'd been playing dead. And it's only Robert Taylor, the last guy, to be defending the Philippines. And the movie ends with Sergeant Dane right behind a machine gun, like firing straight into the camera at the advancing enemy uh, in one last act of courage and defiance. And that was a day Larry King associated, the movie that Larry King associated with his father's death. And there's a toughness to him that many people don't realize, but his mom didn't have a job, so he grew up on relief. New York City bought his first pair of glasses. And he, as I say in the podcast, he had three great reasons to wake up every day. One, the radio. He loved the radio. Two, the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, So he'd be imitating the voices he heard on the radio, and then he'd roll up a program at Ebbets Field and announce the games. And then if he was at the game and he'd go see his friends, he would literally do the entire game over for them, (laughs) announce it right in front of them. And he he would do this for us at breakfast where he would kind of give us the highlights of what happened in a game. It was better than watching the game. And the third reason was his friends, which when you hear the Gil Mappo story will be perfectly (laughs) explainable to you because his friends and he had, it's almost a romantic childhood where they got into all these crazy problems and somehow got out of them at the last moment. And that was the formation of Larry King as a personality who wanted to be on the air. Now, what happens is when he gets to the age of about, I think it's 18, he gets drafted, it's time of the Korean War, he goes in and you've seen his glasses, he can't see. And they basically told him, look, if we sent you into the army and you lost your glasses, you could be shooting the wrong side. So you're 4F and they let him go. All of his friends either went into the army or to college. He was left basically alone. Uh, He scrambled to get odd jobs. He delivered for UPS. He uh, worked for a time for some kind of supermarket collecting debts. Uh, And he collected debts in a very funny way. It was almost like he was on the air. He didn't say, I'm sorry to inform you of this, but if you do not pay that debt, we will congeliate your account. (laughs) Oh my God, that's brilliant. Don't don't congeliate me, please. (laughs) He just would invent a word and make it funny. But the reality is he was a long way from the radio and his best friend 
who figures prominently in the Gil Mapo story that you just heard from Jimmy Kimmel, Herbie had a dad who owned a hat factory. And one day while everybody was off at the army or college, Herbie's dad takes Larry on a walk. They're just going around the streets. He wants to help Larry because he could see Larry's lost. He's working, delivering packages with a driver named Crazy Krause, who's madly driving down the streets, looking for the side view mirrors of cars that are parked so they can knock off. I mean, that's where his life was at at that point. And he didn't, Larry didn't get past high school. And so Herbie's dad says to him, look, like, what do you want to do with your life? And Larry says, I, I want to go into broadcasting. And Herbie's father goes, what are you, a pipe dreamer? Are you crazy? You on the radio? Look, that statement is a very important statement, what this guy said. Whenever someone says that, and I tell this to people all the time, whenever someone says that to you, you can't do that. A, you have to do it after someone says that, <laughs> or you have to at least try. B, they're only saying that because they can't do it. And C, they're also saying it because they don't want you to change. They like the you who they know as a semi-loser, the, the, the guy who's in a box that they've created. They don't want you to rise above that box. So, but go ahead. That's, and, and, I always stop at that phrase. And you know what? Uh, where I'm going is going to validate your last point. Because Herbie's dad looks at him and says, look, you're not going to be Arthur Godfrey, okay? You're, you're, I'll tell you what. I own a hat factory. Why don't you come and work for me as a binder? You'll learn the business. One day, after many years, you can become foreman. A foreman gets three weeks vacation. That way, someday, someday, you can be somebody. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it, it's true. It's uh, it's the whole you should go into plastics thing from the graduate. There was this kind of like old school thinking of what was safe and what was what was quote unquote crazy. But but okay, go go okay, go on. So one of the things, and Larry and I always used to talk about this. We, we used to wonder about the icons that he spoke with and who I interviewed as well. And we used to wonder about similarities and patterns. And one of the themes is quite often, like icons have a dream to do something and they never get put off by Herbie's dad. They, they always find a way to move on the path that's gonna take them to their dream. And so one day, while Larry was delivering packages, like he would get sent up to like the, the office of CBS and he would walk into the elevator to deliver the package, but he would act like he was talent, you know? 17th floor, please. In, or, in that radio voice. And at a certain point, he's like out on the street and he bumps into this guy who is an announcer for CBS. And he says, you know, I'm, look, I'm 
I'm 24. I don't know if he was 24 or 25, around that age. 24 years old. Uh, I've always wanted to be on radio. I really believe this is what I'm meant to do. How do I break in? And the guy says, well, look, it's very hard to get started in New York. Uh, and then, and there's a lot of unions in New York. So why don't you think about going out of Miami? Because there's no unions down there. There's a lot of stations. And just knock on some doors and see if a station will let you in. So Larry, a few days later, like, gets on a, I think it was a train. And I didn't know if it was a train or a bus, but, you know, he had like less than 20 bucks in his pocket. He had an uncle who lived in Miami Beach. And he arrives to find two water fountains. One said white, one said colored. And he immediately walked over to the one that said colored. I don't forget, Brooklyn Dodger fan, Jackie, Jackie Robinson. Was at Jackie Robinson's first game. He lived the whole experience from 47 on. This is 57. And he goes to his uncle, and the next day he's walking around Miami Beach, knocking on doors, asking people if there's any openings. So he goes to this one station, WAHR. The guy at the station says, you, you know, you've you got a pretty good voice. I'll tell you what. If you want to come around every day, sweep up, cut the copy that comes out of the wire machine, just, just help out in little ways. The first time something comes up, I'll put you in. So Larry does that and he, every day just goes in and he is juiced because he is where he wants to be. Now there's this morning uh, DJ named Tom Bear who claimed to be making $65 a week alimony payments and his salary was 60 bucks. <laughs> he said he was living off coconuts falling from the trees. And on one Friday, he went to the general manager and just said, I, I can't do this anymore. And he left. And so the general manager turned to Larry and said, okay, Monday morning, you're the DJ. We'll... See you Monday. So Larry goes home. And look, here's the thing. If you, if you listen to the podcast, you're going to hear Larry tell his story. And it's just so beautiful coming off his voice. But you know what? I'm, I'm just going to tell you because I'm looking at your face and I know you want to hear the rest of the story. So what happens is he oh, goes. I'm, I'm, I'm soaking it all in. All right. I, I'm going to tell you. And then you just promise me you're going to listen to Larry do it. Oh my God, I am I am totally listening because you know what, I this is a this is a big issue for me. I feel I can write in very good stories about my life, but it's hard for me to tell uh, stories about my life. It's a different skill set. I mean, I could do it, but I'm not like great at. It. I feel like writing. I've I've spent a lot of time. I want to I want to learn how Larry King tells a story. Now that you've like uh, uh, sparked this fire in me, and and this is what he did for me. Because like I was able to tell stories pretty well, but when you listen to him every day for 10 years, it was like having an internship with a master, only 
Like I'm in my 50s. And at the end of, I think it was about two, I would say halfway to three quarters of the way through those breakfasts, uh, I was asked to speak in an event on a cruise ship. And I never spoken before. And I sat down and very much like you, I could write out what I wanted to communicate, but I had never gotten up in front of a crowd and communicated. So I wrote down what I wanted to communicate and I started to practice it. And as soon as I did, Larry King came out. Hmm. Wow! Everything that I had heard, all of the shifts and the use of tone and the ability to make people lean in to find out what was going to happen next, I just picked that up by osmosis. It was just coming to me the way I was breathing air. And, and so you will, I promise you, if you listen to this podcast, you listen to the Gil Mapo story, you listen to the story about his first day on the air, you listen to the story about, and the podcast opens with him telling this story uh, about being on the air only a few days and working the night shift because once everyone saw that Larry was a glutton, that he would work, anyone who had wanted time off, they would just say to Larry, you want, you want my shift? And he would do it. And the first all night session that somebody asked him to do at like three in the morning, he picks up the phone and all he hears is a woman's voice. And it says, I want you. <laughs> That's going to inspire anyone to pursue an all-night career in, uh, in radio. Well, I hope it, I hope, I'm going to leave it at that. I hope it will uh, get people who are curious about Larry King to listen to that Farewell to the King podcast on Big Questions because it's my favorite Larry King story uh, and it's in his words. And you'll see that like, I have a favorite Larry. Everybody's got a different favorite Larry King story. There's numerous out there. Uh, but I'm going to take you back to that first day because he spent all weekend practicing and he's got like, his records ready that he's going to play on the air. He's the DJ in the morning. Yeah. And so he goes in first thing in the morning and he stops in at the general manager's office and the general manager says, congratulations, it's your first day, it's a big day. And what are you going to call yourself? And Larry says, well, what do you mean? My name is Larry Zeiger. And the general manager says, yeah, but that's kind of ethnic and uh, it's it's hard to spell. Like, you need to change your name. <laughs> he says, but I, I don't know what to call myself. And so the guy looks down, Marshall Simmons, and he's reading the Miami Herald on the desk. And there's a big ad for King's Wholesale Liquors. <laughs> he looks up and says, how about King? You're Larry King. And Larry said, okay. So time arrives, he goes into the little control studio and he's got 
his music to set up the show all set, swinging down the lane. And he drops the needle, it starts to play. He lifts the needle, starts to talk, nothing comes out of his mouth. <laughs> He's just like, just speechless. He picks up the needle again and he puts it back on the record. It's spinning around, it's da -da 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 -da. picks it up, starts to speak, nothing comes out. Puts the record down again, <laughs> it plays again, picks it up, nothing comes out, and he's thinking, I'm, that's it, my, my career's done. I, I don't know how. So he, you think he, do you think he overprepared? He wanted so this. So instead, like, instead of like riffing and just telling something interesting, he tried to remember what something he had prepared, but in a high stakes moment like that, his first show, maybe he just couldn't remember, his brain shut down. He wanted it so badly that he got so nervous that he couldn't be himself. Fortunately, the general manager kicked down the door to the control room and screamed at him, this is a communication business, damn it, communicate. And Larry looked into the microphone and said, hello, my name is Larry King. That's the first time I've ever announced myself that way. I was never Larry King until 11 minutes before when the general manager told me that was my radio name. And he started to say how much he'd always wanted to go into radio. And he admitted, uh, I'm sorry about that opening. I'm just really nervous. This is all I ever wanted to do in my life. And I just got so nervous. Please bear with me. So, so he, he basically almost instinctively did the first rule of entertainment, writing, comedy, broadcasting, which is really be yourself as much as you can. Like it's usually bad advice to tell someone just be yourself because we're all different people in different situations, in different contexts, but just saying what makes you scared is a good way to, to relate to people and, and, and not trying to sound like a radio announcer he had heard when he was a kid or a writer he had read when he was, you know, inspired to write or whatever it is you're, you're doing. He just always telling a vulnerable story is, is, is really the key to entertainment. That you just hit the bullseye. Vulnerability is the key to storytelling. Without a vulnerable character, you have no story. Yeah. If he said like, I well, I'm going to be the best radio announcer ever. Now you, you're lucky you're listening to me. No one would listen. That, that, that's exactly it. So now he has everybody on his side and he gets through the show. General manager is very happy, and everybody can see that he is here to stay. And he just keeps hanging around the radio station, fills in whenever he can. And that comes to this night a few weeks later, where he's working at like two or three in the morning, and he gets that call from the woman. I'm not going to tell that story because you need to hear it in Larry's own voice. Well, I agree. And I want to hear, I want to hear how, how you met Larry and, and you know, what happened, what happened then. And then I have, I have some specific questions about 
targeted about his style and about, you know, his personal life, which usually I don't ask about people's personal life, but his was very much in the news and exciting. But yeah, how did, how did you get close with him? How did you, what started you having breakfast with him every day? And by the way, I don't, I could understand it. I mean, he, he was whatever, you know, seven in his seventies when you started having breakfast with him every day. And it's good to hang out with younger people. <laughs> Keeps you young. Uh, well, it, I don't think it's, it started with that thought. It was basically a, I wouldn't even say it was like a business relationship or uh, but you had similar interests in a way, in a weird way, you had a, a parallel career. You weren't a radio voice, but you were an interviewer and you had interviewed same people, Mikhail Gorbachev on, right. on down. He he's known for his famous interviews. You're known for your famous interviews. Correct. And so what happened is after Larry had done the DJing in Miami uh, and after he had gone to mutual radio and was on all night all over America, then Larry interviewed Ted Turner, who was just starting CNN. And Ted Turner had a woman on uh, basically doing a, like a news show at nine o'clock Eastern time every night. And this woman had a husband who was her agent. And it was always like pushing Ted for more money. And after Ted had met Larry, he thought, you know, Maybe I can get Larry to do the nine o'clock hour and I can tell this agent to take, give him the heave. Oh, oh no. What, whatever happened to this woman? Where is she now? Nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> so what, like, what happens is Ted calls up Larry and says, I got this nine o'clock slot open and I know you're on the mutual radio network all night until five in the morning, but you can come on CNN at nine o'clock and we have, like, we'll have a place in Washington. So you're on from nine to 10 and then you can get over to your radio studio and then you'll be on, you'll be there by 11 and can have your show all night. And Larry at first said no, two reasons. One, uh, nobody really knew CNN at the time. It was only a few years old. Uh, in fact, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but when Larry did his first CNN show, there was no cable wiring in Washington, D.C. You couldn't even watch the show there. Uh, but Ted was building it, and he said, look, please take this 9 p.m. slot, and if you don't like it after a year, okay, well, just let me know, and that will be it. Now, the reason Larry said no is, he loved his life in Washington. He would go and have lunch every day at Duke Siebert's restaurant. They would sit him right in the middle. All the power players would come in because he'd introduce a lot, a lot of politicians on his radio show all night. And so Larry would have that lunch, and then he'd go to the Baltimore Oriole games, and then he'd do his all-night show. So for him, he was living the perfect life. Why would I want to... I take the show, then I can't go to the baseball games. And But Ted's very persuasive guy, persuaded him. And Larry did the show in Washington, D.C., 1985. Mario Cuomo, governor of New York, was his first guest. And when they got up from that show, they had been sitting 
down with only that old-time radio microphone in between them, though it was filmed, uh, Cuomo looked at him and said, you know what? This feels really right. And Larry felt it too. And so at that point, he started his ascent where at 9 o'clock every night, everybody in America who's watching CNN is tuned into him. And then he says, and stay with me. I'll be on mutual radio all night. All night, we got some good guests tonight. And then he'd do the whole mutual radio show. And in the and morning- was cool with him advertising. Uh, uh, there you go. In the morning, yeah. be, at, at 4.45 in the morning. And tonight on ESPN, tune in. We got Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and Ronald Reagan, he would do the same thing. And he made this a circular vehicle for people to get on. And you could literally be with Larry King from nine at night to five in the morning. I want you to think about that. That was his scope. If you wanted to be with Larry, you could be with him for 33% of the day. So at that point, he, he rose, ascended with CNN, and toward uh, the end of the 90s, at this point, he is one of the most famous people on the planet, one of the few f most famous. Uh, I started to do the Esquire, what I've learned columns where I'm interviewing icons about the wisdom that they've accumulated in life. So it was natural that I'd want to reach out to Larry to get to his wisdom because number one, I've heard all the stories from driving across the country and listening to the radio show and his show at nine o'clock was something I watched almost every night on CNN. I just was fascinated by the way he interviewed. And so we put out a request and Larry was very gracious. And I spent two sessions with him doing that Esquire interview. In person. Uh, yeah. And out in LA. And it was great because he's just telling these wonderful stories. And the what I've learned column in Esquire was one written page of wisdom in the subject's own words, and then a full page picture. I had like, I could have filled the whole magazine with what Larry King gave me in two hours. what were some things he told you that really helped you, that really improved you? Because we all do podcasts, we interview a lot of people, and I get a lot of tidbits of wisdom and I try to incorporate them into my life, but it's, it's difficult sometimes. And I'm just curious what you actually took and incorporated into your life. I can distill it to a sentence. Every setback is a step forward. And Larry had lots of setbacks in his life. Uh, there was a time where he was arrested and he lost his job uh, in Miami radio. Uh, what happened is not long after the Kennedy assassination, there were a lot of people who thought that it was a conspiracy. They didn't believe that Lee Harvey Oswald was the only person behind the murder. And 
as you know, Lee Harvey Oswald was shot uh, after he was imprisoned. So we never knew anything from that end. And to this day, we don't really know what happened. If you go to the actual X on the road in Dallas where Kennedy was shot, like where the motorcade was when he was shot, there's a guy who will tell you what happened and then and he'll give you a CD and everything, a CD. <laughs> and it's up to you to decide if he's wow. correct or not, but he's very persuasive. I, I, and I'm sorry to be laughing. I'm just laughing at the absurdity of it. But back then, uh, a lot of people were really concerned and wanted to know what happened. And there was a district attorney in New Orleans named Jim Garrison. Sure, so the Oliver Stone movie. Yeah, that this is exactly this time frame. Who it just knows that something deep is here, and he wants to investigate it, and he won't let this go. He is like a pit bull with a piece of meat that he's not going to let go. But he doesn't really have the funds to do the kind of investigation that he wants to do. So he meets up with Larry and Larry says, well, you know, like I know some people with money, maybe they might be interested in getting behind you. So he introduces Jim Garrison to a wealthy guy named Lou Wolfson. And Lou is fascinated with all this. And Lou says, okay, I will, I'll get behind this. I think Lou is going to pay him like $25,000 in installments, but he didn't want there to be any paper trail. So he said, here's how we're going to work it. I'm going to give Larry like $5,000 at a time and it'll be in cash and he's going to pass it on to you. And that's how we'll get the money to you. And it's basically coming to you in an envelope and that's it. And so everyone says, that's fine. And so first time comes and, and Lou gives the money to Larry and Larry meets Garrison and passes on the money. Everything's fine. As this goes on, there's one time where Lou gives Larry the money, but for some reason, Larry and Garrison don't get together. Now, at this point, uh, Larry, he always was living over his head at that time. He was Mr. Miami, uh, but he, he, he just had, he had debts because he was living the way he wanted to live. And also, if somebody needed money, he was very empathetic. And he would loan money, even when he owed money. Hmm. And so at about a point where Lou Wilson gives him this envelope with the five grand in it, Larry had some bills to pay. And he says, well, I'm not going to get together with Garrison for a while. So he calls up Wilson and says, like, can I use the money to just pay my bills? And then I'll take care of paying Garrison. And I don't know what happened. Uh, but shortly thereafter, Wolfson was arrested for selling unregulated stocks or some something uh, of that sort. And once he was in jail and interviewed, 
they looked at his funds and you know money was going out and he got questioned and the next thing you know Larry King is charged with grand larceny because of this 5000 bucks and his mugshot is in the newspapers and the station that he was working at at the time said you know you better just take a little time off uh, until the case is resolved well the case was supposed to be resolved after a few days but the judge had a heart attack right before the case which put it like in a banner ad at the Miami Herald you know like judge has heart attack in Larry King case and then the station was saying okay look just stay off the air for a while and it took a while before the they fired him yes. they didn't they, they didn't say for a while they didn't think he was coming back well what happened is it was for a while and then the case was resolved and it was dropped they they just said no you're sure. not you're not guilty and larry went back to the station and they said sorry you know we we can't give you back your job was he i mean i i imagine if something like that happened to me i would have been and he was he was younger then than i am now but this is 1971 but uh, uh i would have gotten so depressed i don't know how i would have dealt with it every setback is a step forward but he realizes that in hindsight did he realize that then well let me tell you what happens so he's down to his last 48 bucks He's got two kids that he knows about that he's paying child support for. It's the end of May. His May rent is due in a few days, which he obviously doesn't have the money to pay. Uh, he also smoked three packs of cigarettes a day. He needed money for his cigs. And he just... <laughs> got 48 bucks could have been 46 could have been 42 and he decides to go to Calder racetrack and he puts on this Pierre Cardin jean outfit that had no pockets I don't know why he put it on but he did and so he drives out to Calder and he gives the key to the valet. He knows he's got to tip the valet two bucks. It's like to get the keys and drive home. So he's basically got 40 something dollars to work with. And he's studying the horses. The third race is coming. And he looks at this horse named Lady Forley, a filly running against all males. Now, normally for a female horse to beat a male horse, very difficult. Larry's studying this chart and he's seeing that this horse has won in more or less the same company a few weeks back, a few months back. And he looks at the board and it, Lady Forley is a 70 to 1 underdog. Hmm. And Larry's thinking, you know, some, something's wrong here. And he turns to the guy next to him and says, like, what, what's, what's up here? Because I'm seeing this horse, it's beat many of the horses in the race, but it's 70 to one. The guy said, look, there's other horses in here. It's not the same race. And I said, yeah, so Lady Forley should be 20 to one, but not 70 to one. And the guy said, look, it's just not gonna work out. That horse is not gonna win the race. 
So Larry keeps looking at Lady Forley. He's looking, he's looking, and he said, I'm going to go bet on Lady Forley. He bets Lady Forley to win. And then he comes back, and he's looking at Lady Forley some more, and he said, I'm going to go back. And he bets Lady Forley in an exacta. So he's got Lady Forley to win over every other horse in the race. All right? He's got Lady Forley to win, Lady Forley to in the exacta. So he's got it above and below all those other horses. And he's got- What do you mean below? Um, so if, if Lady Forley finished second, then he's still going to win some money. Okay. Because he has to win some money because he's, he's bet it with every other horse. And then he's got like $2 left. And he says, you know what? I'm going to bet a trifecta. So my birthday is November 19th. I'm going to bet 1119. So he puts, he's got $2 to his name now, which he's got to give the valet as he's leaving. So goes back out and he's watching as the race gets started and they're off. And the one takes off in the lead. The nine is second and the 11 is Lady Forley. And Lady Forley is like in good position, but third, as they get halfway, Lady Forley starts to close in, passes the second horse, takes the lead. And now it is 11-1-9, and they race around the track, <laughs> like five lengths apart in that order, and Larry has won every bet that he has made. So he's got like, he goes to pick up the cash and he's got no pockets to put it in. <laughs> he wore his pair cardan jeans suit. So he takes off the jacket and he's got this bundle of cash and he wraps his jacket around the cash. How much cash? Like how much did he win I, on I $40? Think, I think it was like, 8,000 bucks or so. So this is like, this is like roughly almost between 60 and $70,000 inflation adjusted. Uh, there you go. This is, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the, of the, it's like 1972, something like around that time. Yeah. Inflation's about seven or eight X since then. Okay. So he goes straight to the valet who looks at him. And I uh, leave an early, Mr. King. And Larry says, yeah. And he said, bad day, huh? <laughs> Larry takes out a $50 bill, tips him. Guy nearly faints. He gets his car and he drives over to uh, what later became uh, Joe Robbie Stadium. It's since gone through another incarnation. And he basically stops in an empty parking lot and... <laughs> takes out all this cash, opens, opens up his jacket, takes out all this cash. And he, he said, okay, my rent is like $360 a month. And he counts out 3,000, uh, he counts out a year's rent, uh, 4,000, whatever it was. 
um, my child payments, $100 a month. He counts out $1,200. And he buys cartons of cigarettes <laughs> fill up his uh, kitchen dresser. And shortly around that time, he went out to work at a racetrack in Louisiana because he still didn't have his job. And then the station management at his old station in Miami called and asked him, and since it's new people and they realized that this was Mr. Miami, why did we give this guy up? The case was dropped. And so they asked him to come back and Larry said yes. And when he came back, his first words on the air were, as I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And, and so whatever dilemma you are in, and you're going to hear all these dilemmas if you listen to that podcast. Listen to me. I'm like, Larry, I'm selling my CNN show. I'm selling my mutual radio no, that's show. That's great. I'm gonna, I'm, you've convinced I, me to listen I, to your podcast. I have never done this before today. I, I'm telling you, I was, I, I'm shy to sell. Oh, you've brought it out of me. You've brought it out of me, and I'm channeling Larry, and I just know that if you listen to that podcast, you, you're going to be laughing. You may end up crying, but you'll be glad you did. And point being, every time something happened in Larry King's life where he went down, he trampolined well above it shortly thereafter. And so when that happens, you start to get accustomed to it. Now, is it, like, here's a question. Is he just lucky? Like that obviously was some luck, some skill, right? Cause he looked at the sheets, he saw this horse had, was being under undervalued, but is it, is it luck or is he trying many things and then one of them hits? Like we don't know the things he was trying at that exact moment that maybe weren't working out. Something worked out in this remarkable way and that's the story, but do you think he's kind of going all out trying different things and, and you know, luck favors the prepared? Well, the title of his autobiography that I helped him write was My Remarkable Journey. And so, and he looks at these events as miracles, minor miracles that kept propelling him from one place to the next. But he seemed to intuit the way to pivot. And so at the time where AM radio was basically looking very weak, he pivoted to all night and he became very strong. And then that led him to his conversation with Ted Turner, which led him to CNN. Which, which by the way, CNN pre um, Gulf War One was not such a big station. So it seems like he identifies he, he gets into a c competitive arena like radio or TV that's in general competitive for, for a job, but he finds like the weakest spots and dominates those spots. He becomes his strategy has become, become a big fish in a small pond that is surrounded by a much bigger pond. I, I didn't, I never even thought of that. It's a great point because that's, that's what he did. And when, when you look at it that way, you see that you can identify that 
But once you move in, you got to have the goods. Yeah. And it was at that point where he got invited back to the station in Miami shortly after that, that the mutual radio network called him and asked him to come on from 11 at night to five in the morning, which sent him to Washington. And now he was a national figure. And once Ted Turner took him to the satellites, he became an international figure. But, and this is really important because there's going to come a time in this podcast where you're going to ask, like, why does Larry ask these, like, softball questions? He never asks a hard question. And what people didn't realize that Larry King changed elections and won presidential election with his questions. You might yeah, like remember. Ross Perot that's announced right. That's right. For president. That's right. So I'll, I'll let you. Yeah. Go, go for it. So did he know? Did he know that Ross Perot was going to do that? He had heard. The rumors were flying. Some scuttlebutt that you know Ross really would like to run, and then it was like from a friend of a friend who claimed to know Perot, and so when Perot came on his show, in the beginning, Larry just put it out there. You know, would would you like to run for president? Like, nah, I wouldn't do that, Larry. Like, you know, Perot was uh, from Texas, right? He was a he was a Southern gentleman, business magnate, and Larry kind of put it in his pocket. And midway through the show, he he said, "You know, are you sure you wouldn't run for president?" And Perot said, "Absolutely not. I'm, I'm, I'm I have no plans to do so." And right before the end, something just instinctively clicked in Larry. And he asked the question in a different way. Ross, under what circumstances would you run for president? Mm. And that was the little key that turned the lock to open the heavy door. As Perot said, well, I'll tell you, Larry, if everybody in the country and every state put together petitions and said, we want Ross Perot on the ballot, I'd have to really think about running for president. And Larry actually didn't think much after Perot said it. But when Perot got back to his hotel, the hotel doorman had $10 in his hand to pass on to Ross to say, it's like your first campaign contribution. Wow. And when Larry got to the mutual radio, everybody is calling. Cause again, you gotta realize he's like on the air for a third of the day. There's no escape in this guy. <laughs> and so from 11 to five in the morning, is he gonna run? What can we do? And Here's one of the things that in my mind makes Larry great in a way that we need him more now than ever. Because what happened is Perot got into the race, something happened, he pulled out, and then he said, no, no, I am going to run. And he, he got like 17, 18, 19% of the vote. And that vote was Republican. So Perot 
took away George Bush 41 votes and it pushed the election to Bill Clinton. Larry King in that one question was responsible for Bill Clinton being president and everything that's happened in the United States thereafter because of that one question. And now you say, well, why didn't he just drill people with questions? And his point was, look, if you make people comfortable, they're going to feel like you're a friend. You know, that is a very important quality. Like, I think you and I both have, uh, in, in that aspect of his interviewing, I think you and I are both similar. Like, I never... It's it's pointless to be aggressive because you're not you're actually going to get less information than more information, and in an odd way, even though their styles are very different, Howard Stern also does the same thing. You feel like his best friend when you're in the room being interviewed by him. Now he goes for different topics and stuff, but Larry King has a, uh, an interesting aspect though, where he doesn't research his guests before they come on. Now, you and I are both very different from that. Like I. Re research very, very heavily. I'll read every book. I'll watch other interviews someone's done. I'll, I'll do, I'll do everything. But I feel like I, with Larry King, you can't tell, was this because he was doing so many interviews? He couldn't possibly read all the books and watch all the interviews. Oh, no, 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 no. Here's, here's what happened. So I described that first day on the air when Larry get, gets rolling, you're going to listen to the big questions podcast. <laughs> and when you start that podcast, farewell to the King, you're going to hear Larry King tell the story of the woman who calls him up and says, I want you, and you are going to follow the trajectory of his career. So what happens is Larry starts to become kind of a big shot as soon as he gets that first job on a very small level, just like what you're talking about. Somebody who does something big on a on a small level. And the owner of a local deli named Pumpernicks, uh, it's open 24-7, thinks, you know, my business is, is really good, but between like 10 and 11 in the morning, between the breakfast rush and lunch, we kind of have this dull spot. What if I got Larry to come in and do interviews from the restaurant at that time. And we could sell it to another station. And Larry got the approval. And he showed up at Pumpernick's Deli for the first day. There was a platform with Larry King's name on it and a microphone and a chair, but there was no producer. There was no guest. There was nobody to do anything. It was just the microphone and a chair. And Larry had to figure out a way to interview people when he had no guests. So he started by talking to the guests in a restaurant. <laughs> Where are you from? Almost like a comedian sure. looking out. Again, goes back to, Larry, if you hadn't gone into broadcast interviewing, what you, would you have been? I would have been a comic. He's talking to the crowd. He's interviewing the waiters and he's making the waiters like known in the community. And Bobby Darren, the singer, when the shark bites, uh, 
hears this on the radio and he comes over to Pumpernick's to go on Larry's show. And they have a great session. And now everybody wants to come to Pumpernick's to be interviewed. Guys are bringing Jimmy Hoffa over <laughs> to oh my Pumpernick's to be interviewed. Like there's no producer. You just have to show up to be interviewed by Larry King. And so Larry did these interviews with no preparation. He didn't know who was going to walk in. And he liked just being able to be curious. You know, Jimmy, <laughs> Jimmy Hoffa, and seeing where it went. And he never abandoned that style. He allowed his curiosity to just push the interviews forward. Uh, certainly, tough questions might get removed from the interview because if you haven't done the research, you, you may not have the precise information to ask a tough question. But he had a way of figuring out how to get into somebody often without asking a question. Did he have a belief that everyone has an interesting story to tell? Uh, I, I think he knew he could find the spark, that spark. And again, in Pumpernick's, they didn't have to go for an hour. You know, if he's on for the, with the waiter, it might be three minutes. You know, the waiter had to go out and <laughs> deliver food. Uh, but he'd walk over to somebody else. So it wasn't until Bobby Darren started to come in and you got Bobby Darren, well, you know, we'll, we'll go for an hour. Uh, and that began to attract like Lenny Bruce, Don Rickles, Everybody wanted to come. And so it was conversational and, and fun, and everybody wanted to just drop in. And it was his secret sauce. That's great. So, that, so after that, that was his inspiration to, to keep doing that stuff. Because sometimes, sometimes it gets a little awkward if he has like a famous person on that everyone knows about, and Larry just might not know what movies they were in or what TV show they're on. And those are the things that are kind of aired, like those, those sort of bloopers. That, that's right. But, but I guess most of the time, it's really interesting to hear how he brings out the story. Like, I, I remember there's one point where he had, I think it was Seinfeld, and, and Seinfeld was like, are you really asking me this? Do you realize I had a TV show? Right. Yeah, he, he basically asked a question that intimated that Seinfeld got canceled. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was a vague question, and Seinfeld just jumped on it. Like, but that's Seinfeld style too. He likes to um, he likes to challenge the interviewer. He, I see him do that many times. And it just gave him a, like a perfect opportunity to just say, like, do you understand like the viewership that that show had, the right. situation we were in, and though that blooper can really give a, a bad impression of all the good things that sure. came out of the style. There's another story that comes out in the podcast about his interview with Frank Sinatra that will point out how he actually asked questions, deep questions, without asking the question. I mean, this guy 
was a genius and a master. And I watched him night after night at CNN ask questions without even saying a word. Just, he could do it with a glance. He could stop somebody from talking without saying a word. Somebody start rambling, he'd give a quick look at his watch and the person knew, uh-oh. <laughs> so that was a technique. He, and if you asked him, Larry, how do you get some, to, how do you stop somebody who's rambling? He never codified it into an online course that said, this is what to do. But when he was, he was like a jazz musician. When he was in the moment, he would just do these things. And that's where getting a chance to watch him night after night after night, you say, oh, that's how he does it. I learned so much about Larry King. I did not know. I, I really didn't. I mean, there, there's a lot to learn from someone who has spent 50 or more years doing the same thing you do. I interview people. I do these, this podcast. And to study the techniques of the people who have mastered it and done really well with it, even if they have a unique style, sometimes a style I don't agree with, plus to learn from his life experiences is fascinating. The next part of this, which is also available today, we have two parts available today. The next part of this is what Cal himself learned from Larry. And Cal is a master interviewer. Cal had breakfast with him every day for over a decade. And, and Cal has some intense personal experiences with Larry, particularly, you know, he's passed away recently. So download and listen to part two. It's even more intense than this episode was. Thanks. Mm -hmm.